Hi, and welcome to Government Transformed, a podcast all about digital transformation, produced by Global Government Forum with support from knowledge partner Visa. I'm your host, Siobhan Benita, and I'm here to take you on a journey into the future of government, where I speak to guest experts about what their organisations are doing to digitalise and the progress that bureaucracies can make, regardless of where they are on their path to digital transformation. Ready? Let's go. So welcome back, everybody, to our series, Government Transformed. And today we're going to take a dive into looking at trust and why building trust is so important for civil servants and public servants in that context of digital transformation. I've got two brilliant guests with me here today. I'm going to explain we're all in different locations, so we're not in the room together. But I've got Ben Rosseth, who is the Senior Specialist in Modernization at the Inter-American Development Bank. And Ben is great because in addition to all of the stuff that he's doing more broadly on modernization, has actually written a really good blog, which we'll put in the podcast notes on trust as both an obstacle and an opportunity for digital transformation. So I'll be asking Ben a bit more about that. And we also have Ailey McLaughlin, who is head of the Digital Citizen Unit in the Scottish Government. So couldn't be more on topic for today's conversation. And one thing that I'm going to probably come back to Ailey on is about why this unit was created, because it's a fairly recent creation. So Ben, Ailey, Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you both here. Could you both just tell us where you are and then maybe give us a sense of what your current role is all about? Ben, let's come to you first. Thank you so much for having me. I'm coming to you from Kingston, Jamaica, where I'm representing the Inter-American Development Bank and leading our state modernization work here. That means supporting the government of Jamaica on different digital transformation and public management projects. So there's a big one underway on creating a national identification system, which includes digital ID and signature. There's another multi-headed monster of public sector transformation, which includes a little bit of public sector pay reform, digitization of citizen and business-facing services, um, and also a cybersecurity project that's underway. So within the IDB, I actually have two hats. One is supporting the government of Jamaica in these projects that I've just mentioned, and another is leading our regional analytical work on digital government, which led me to write the book chapter and the supporting blog that you mentioned uh, on trust and digital transformation. Wow. There's so many things that we could talk to you about in terms of transformation there. I mean, today we are going to focus in on trust, but I'm also in Kingston, although it's not Kingston, Jamaica. I'm Kingston-upon-Thames in London, so very different weather, I should imagine, at the moment. Thanks, Ben. Ailey, where are you coming to us from? Hi, folks. Thanks, Sean. I'm coming to you from sunny Dundee in Scotland. It's my base and outside my window I can see the HMS Discovery and also the V&A. So it's a very nice location to sit here, but not as glamorous as Kingston and Jamaica. So as Siobhan has already said, I work in Scottish government and I head up the Digital Citizen Unit. And we are part of the digital strategy delivery in Scotland. And that's about similar to what Ben was saying about how we can really use digital to benefit public sector services in Scotland. There's many strands of that from 
infrastructure, basically putting in the wires that carry the connectivity to people from actually transforming the services themselves to putting the users at the heart of that transformation process and right the way through to what I do in terms of ensuring that trust is paramount for digital services and transformation but also within that making sure that it's inclusive and I'll come back to that later. Thanks Ailey. So it's really clear from what both you and Ben have said that there's a lot of digital transformation going on, whether you're in Scotland or whether you're in the Caribbean. This is something that governments around the world are really focused on at the moment. If this is going to happen anyway, and if governments are doing this anyway, why should they care so much about building trust with their citizens? Because isn't it just going to happen to citizens regardless? Ben, your thoughts. Why is it so important to put so much emphasis on building that trust? In a word uptick, unless governments completely turn off the face-to-face channels or the mail-in channels of service delivery, if users don't trust the digital services, they're not going to use them. And if they don't use them, then neither the government nor the citizenry are going to get any of the benefits that digital services can entail, the greater efficiency, greater transparency, the greater objectivity, so on and so forth. And governments indeed are often bounding headfirst into digital transformation and spending lots of money and as well as money, political capital. But it's all for naught if the digital services are not going to be used. So if we see trust as a prerequisite, to uptake, then trust is a prerequisite for getting value for money. And Ailey, is that the reasoning behind the unit that you lead, that trust is crucial for these services to be used? So yes, to an extent, and I agree very much largely with what Ben said, but there's a bit more to it than that. When governments and others design services that are in a digital space, we tend to do it the wrong way. And by that, I mean, We do try and put the user at the heart, but actually we're thinking about, although one set of type of users, we're not thinking about all users. And I think the fundamental thing here is that trust is earned. If you do not design for everybody, and here I mean people who are digitally excluded, people in poverty, people who are disabled, people who have mental health disabilities, not just physical disabilities, which usually people jump to as the word disabled. If you don't build for people who lack trust in government in the first place, then actually you're never going to switch off the alternative routes. And to do that, you have to think completely inclusively when you design, but you also have to think ethically. And that's where my unit comes in. So the Digital Citizen Unit in Scottish Government was set up to house several programmes, one of which was Connecting Scotland, which got people online during the pandemic who were digitally excluded, mostly who were in digital poverty, but we helped a lot of other types of people as well, including people with disabilities. We also have programmes around about digital ethics, data ethics, and unlocking the value of public sector data. That's not as scary as it sounds. We're not handing over people's data wholesale to private sector companies, not at all. We're actually thinking about how we do it in an ethical way, which would provide benefit back to the public sector. 
we don't do it yet. I want to highlight that. Scottish government to not, not give away data. Um, so it's all of these things combined. But I was really interested in another point that Ben said earlier. It's not just what we do externally, it's what we do internally and how we practice what we preach. So in my unit as well, we also have the knowledge and information management teams for Scottish government. So the people that are behind where we hold and store our records, the people who are behind information assurance and the people who are actually behind the library services, and they're really important in this. These people and these teams service the citizenship within Scottish government without which our government couldn't run. And when you're thinking about building trust, one of the pillars of that is open government for the people of Scotland. If we don't know where we hold our data, how we hold our data, what our information contains, then again, we can't build trust with the people that we serve. And so all these facets come together to make up the Digital Citizen Unit and then reflect outwards through our strategy into what we're doing in public sector. Thanks, Elliot. I mean, there's so much there to unpick. I want to come back to something you said there about vulnerable groups in particular, because I think our audience will be, a lot of them will be civil servants, public servants who are listening to this, but they're also people who will have family members and who would probably have struggled with some digital services themselves. So I'm going to park that for a minute, but come back to that issue of equality, I guess I would say, in digital services. But Ben, I saw you nodding a lot there. And I know part of what you do when you work with the government of Jamaica is is that cross-departmental, crossing kind of departmental silos. And what Ailey seemed to be saying there was before or alongside building trust with the public, you've also got to get the basics right internally to make sure that people are doing those kind of foundational things. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. The basic argument that I tried to put across in this chapter and blog is that Trust is both an opportunity for digital transformation, but also an obstacle. And it's an obstacle insofar as citizens or users are concerned, as well as public servants. So you all would know better than I that in many public administrations, there is an atmosphere of mistrust that's generally, they can cut a number of ways. Sometimes it's vertical mistrust, where the managers mistrust the line staff or lower level staff. Also, there's horizontal mistrust, where one department mistrusts another. All of this is really harmful to what we have come to understand as digital ways of working, where it's useful to have a more horizontal work atmosphere, where the hierarchy is not important, the good ideas are important. And also the cross-institutional environment where I have a product let's call it a payment platform. I've built it here in the center of government and it should be used by everyone. And I really don't want to twist your arm into using it, but please, please use it because it's going to be better for you. It's going to be better for the public budget and it's going to be better for the user if everyone uses it. So cracking the nut of getting that payments platform or whatever cross-government service adopted without creating a bad taste in everyone's mouth is really important. And I wouldn't venture to say how that can be done because it really depends on every country context. This podcast is sponsored by Visa. Visa helps governments around the world to transform their work and impact through digital solutions for accepting and making payments domestically or across borders. It's really fascinating for me doing more and more of these episodes that actually 
culture and people is so much more important than the technology when we're talking about digital transformation. So actually building trust very much comes into that people space, I would say. And as you say there, getting people to kind of share information, share data across departmental silos is part of getting the foundations right so that when you actually deliver a service to the public, it works. And I guess coming back to this sense then of building trust with the public, I mean, is it realistic even? I'm going to put myself in the position of many of our listeners and what you were saying, Ailey, about some people being digitally excluded, for example. Is it realistic for the public sector to expect, for example, elderly people to suddenly trust all of the things that they've done face-to-face to now be online? Is it realistic for us to expect people that might have accessibility issues, for example, to trust the fact that they might get the same service digitally? Or do we have to, as we build digital services, should we also be building alongside it alternatives to the digital offer? Ailey, I'm going to come back to you on this one. Like, How realistic is that really to expect everybody to be able to engage in this new digital future? So it's a really good question and one that we're faced with quite a lot. And usually when I'm talking about this type of answer, I talk about the can'ts and won'ts, but it does go a bit wider than that because I I do simplify a little bit to make it a bit easier. I think what we've got to understand is that it's not just government who's driving the society in this direction. We have private sector driving in this direction too, and then third sector paddling like mad to keep up, basically. Because of that, and because of the way a lot of things have been designed already, it's causing a little bit of issue. So, for example, if I look at recent news headlines, which said things like, if you want to travel on a train, we're going to remove ticket offices at remote stations. So all you can do to travel on a train is buy a ticket online. Or we're going to remove banks from remote and rural places or indeed out of city centres. And you're going to be able to do all your banking online. And I, I question when I hear those headlines, because I think what has produced the evidence to show that actually that's the direction of travel, that people need the service delivery in that way. And I think this is coming back to what you were saying, Siobhan, you've got to do it in an evidence-led way. So for example, there will be some types of services that you just cannot deliver digitally because they require a face-to-face interaction. And those types of services might be narrowed down to quite a small number of services, but they still need to be recognised and protected. You still need to, we need to understand that we're also in a transition phase. So this, our, our new our new technology revolution, whatever you want to call it, has been going on for about 30 or 40 years. And that's quite young in the life of a revolution. And, you know, lots of things have happened in that space of time, which has maybe distracted a bit. So, you know, we've had crashes of world banking and property markets. We've had world pandemics. We've had UK, certainly, cost of living crisis. And I know that's had a ripple effect across the world with inflation. And all these things take away attention from maybe trying to achieve a digital goal. That might be the right thing because actually that's the facing there now. So you can use digital then to augment that and support that and drive again trust through that support as you deliver services to, to look at those different things happening. But I think fundamentally it comes down to this. Listen to your users and take them on a journey. And that journey might be a digital one or it might not. And you have to adjust accordingly. In the digital inclusion space in which I work, we listen to people a lot about their experiences of coming online and understanding their skills and motivation for doing so and their fears. And that's really important. 
We never say to people when we bring them into our digital inclusion program, you must use this laptop or device that we're giving you and the connectivity we're giving you. You must use that to either apply for benefits or you must use it to apply for a driving license if that's what you want to do. We don't do that at all. We say to them, use this device for whatever you need to use it for. Because if we start dictating what people use it for, it'll actually increase their mistrust. Whereas if we say to them, look, you know, you do what you want. You get into the digital world in the way you want to, supported by us. Yes, we teach essential digital skills. Yes, we look at cyber security. So absolutely supported by us. But it's for them to decide. And that's right. It's their choice. You can never force somebody to do a digital transaction. But maybe you can show if it's designed the right way and it works the way it should, that actually it can be time effective for people who can be very time poor, or indeed it can be more of a slow process, more of a thoughtful process for those who need it to be slower and more considered to their needs. And that's the benefit of good design and services. Ben, what Ailey's saying there from the Scottish perspective, I'm curious, because obviously you're sitting in the Caribbean region, but I know you also work across Latin America as well. Would you say that governments there are taking a similar approach to digital transformation in terms of both thinking about inclusion as they kind of digitalize their services, but also engaging citizens in the actual design of those services as a way of building trust along the way? A wonderful question and a whole lot to unpack. So just a, a little plug for a bit of forthcoming work that we're doing at the IDB. We're writing a whole book about digital transformation of public services and in inclusion and equity. And the reason that we're writing this book is because we have anecdotal experiences and a lot of observations over the past couple of years that inclusion is not a primary concern. So we look at the digital strategies that have been produced throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, and there's only passing reference to bits and pieces of what you could consider to be a broad inclusion agenda. So it's definitely my intuition that kind of the usual suspects are primary users of digital public services. So the educated, young, urban population generally. And we're conducting a bunch of surveys to see if that's actually the case and quite a few case studies. So so sit tight for, for that research to come out. There's another part of your question that I'll interpret it as what's the motivation behind digital transformation? Do we want citizens to use digital services just because? Because it's cheaper for government to provide them, because we think it's better for them? Or is the goal broader to deliver better public services. By better, I mean more tuned to users' needs. And we see a bit of both in the region. We see digital agendas that are largely standalone, um, especially when they're, the motivating force is fiscal. So we're going to do digital transformation because it will lead us to save money in government, which is valid. But it leads to a different approach because it, that could make governments think, all right, we're going to get as many people online because online is the way to go. This way we can redistribute civil servants from frontline delivery positions to other roles. We can close physical offices, we can spend less on paper, so on and so forth. And all that is fine, but it will lead you to a different conclusion than if you think 
we want to make our government more citizen-oriented, to meet citizens where they are and give them their services in the way that is most useful, most helpful to them. If that is a perspective, then I can see a much broader approach. And I have seen a much broader approach take shape where the governments think about an omnichannel approach where you can start a service online and then you can go talk to someone in person. There, This also leads governments to think about integrated service centers. So those who want or need to access services in person can access everything under one roof in a place that's close to where they live. And also leads governments to think more conscientiously about inclusion of those groups that might have a more difficult time accessing the service online. And I think a really interesting piece of that is the design element. So it's rather evident that there might be some groups with less access to internet, lower levels of digital skills. Okay. Where I think Ely's point about designing with users and something that we've been hearing for the past decade or so coming out of the rise of GTS and other similar institutions around the world is not necessarily taking users' word for it, but watching them, watching as it, them as they try to access a service through any, any number of observational techniques and seeing what is the issue. It might be a simple cut and dry design issue, like the button is on the left where it should be on the right, but it might be something linguistic having to do with the language that's used. It, it might be that the language is too formal, too legalistic, or it might be something even psychological depending on the nature of the service. Let's say you're applying for some kind of bereavement related service, or you're trying to access a death certificate for a family member. If the language in that isn't sensitive to the difficult situation that the person might be going through, it might lead some users to say, I can't deal with this, goodbye, which ends up being exclusive in a different kind of way. And I don't think you would be sensitive to that if your single-minded goal was to just move as many users online as possible. In our very first episode, I was speaking to Kevin Cunnington, who used to be the head of the government digital service in the UK, and he was explaining the difference between simply digitalizing an existing process, as you say, to make it cheaper, more efficient, and actual digital transformation, which, as you say, is transforming the very nature of that service. And his argument is we've only actually done this once. We've done it once in the UK with universal credit, but actually there are very few governments around the world who have even done one proper transformative change. So it's really interesting to hear you put it in that way, because I guess if you can truly transform your services so that the user experience then becomes so much better than it was before, surely that's a way of building trust with your citizens as well, because they, they see it's demonstrated to them that government are trying to make their lives better. Ailey, I want to come back to you on another issue related to this, though, which is all this talk of building trust and improving services. It's great when those services go well, and it's great when you do make a service easier for the public. But surely that trust is very easily lost as well. For example, if the service crashes or if there's a data breach and their data is shared in a way they're not happy with, 
how does government prevent a loss of trust? Because you can't ever stop those issues happening. How do you stop that creating a retreat of trust? Is that built into your thinking? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things about trust is that it takes a long time to build and can be lost in a split second. And some of the things that you mentioned there, Siobhan, are, are absolutely things that can decimate trust if they're handled in the wrong way. Now, there's two things here I think I want to say. First of all, I just want to say something that's connected to this and, and a point Ben was making. And that's about data that we drive from digitalizing services. We cannot presume that people actually understand what and how we're going to use their data. We tend to do privacy notices and like in very legalistic terms. They don't actually often explain data flows particularly well. And they certainly can't explain to people very easily at which point of different data flow processes they might be able to either extract their data or ask for it to be restricted or indeed correct it. And there's something about how we address that which actually would build trust but also leans into your next point about what happens when something goes wrong. We should be using those types of communications in a way to describe what we will do when things go wrong. And not just we'll inform the Information Commissioner if it's a data breach or indeed any national cyber authority. We should be more clear than that and really set expectations. And then crucially, you follow those expectations. And that's communicating with people even when you don't have much to communicate. It's the silence that breaks the trust. And it's the silence that gives people space to think what's happening. There's something worse happening. They wouldn't, they're not telling me. Why are they not telling me? And all these questions flood in. And that's the issue with trust. People's trust is gone by the time you get to that point. Ben, I'll let you answer this first and then I'll come back to you, Ailey, as well on this. Absolutely, that silence and lack of communication of how your data is used and what would happen if there was an issue with your data. But the private sector have a silence on that as well. And yet people trust, I mean, they give over their data to, you know, Amazon, Google, all sorts of companies without question. Ben, why do you think? the public trust the private sector in a way they don't trust the public sector? And also, am I right in saying in certain countries, there's a higher level of trust between the citizen and the government than in others? I think, for example, in the UK, there's a relatively low level of trust between the citizen and the government in terms of sharing their data. Whereas I think in Latin America, there might be a higher level. I think in terms of the empirics around this, the global trust surveys, which are done in the context of Eurobarometer, Latino Barometer, and in a different way, the World Value Survey, show that the lowest trust regions in the world are in this order, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East. This is for interpersonal trust. So how much do I trust my neighbor? And there's similar ratings for citizen trust in government, and the trust in government is, depending on the data source, broken down by the type of institution. So the political establishment, the executive branch, the judiciary, police, so on and so forth. But in broad terms, we can consider um, continental Europe and the UK to a certain extent as a medium to high trust area, not quite as high as the Nordics and Latin America as a very low trust. So I got it wrong. I was the wrong way around. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Um, the other question that you asked is, why do people mistrust government more than the private sector? I think generally, at the very back of people's minds is a kind of worst case scenario. What is the worst thing that Netflix can do to me if they get all of my data? Well, 
they can bombard me with terrible TV shows that I'm not interested in. Or maybe they can sell it, right, to someone else who might do something a bit more nefarious. Okay, what's the worst thing government can do to me if they really want to use my data to my detriment? Well, they can cut me off from all my services. They can kick my kids out of school. They can pick me up in an unmarked car in the middle of the night, so on and so forth. The worst case scenario immediately gets much, much darker for the government than it does for the private sector. So I think that's why the trust standard is higher. Yeah, absolutely. I understand and agree with all of that. But do you also think, going back to, I think one of us said this earlier, that if you provide a great service, people will trust you. Is it that as government, we're not providing a Netflix quality service? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely, absolutely the case. So we actually have done a little bit of research at the IDB, experimental research that asks the question, when pitted against one another, what do citizens care about more? The protection of their personal data, so privacy, or personalization of services, meaning what would you prefer to hold on to your personal data and not have anyone use it? Or do you want a personalized service? Overwhelmingly in Latin America, 90 some odd percent say, I want the personalized service, even if the data that's required to deliver that service is quite sensitive, a health related data, for example. So I think you know, our, our general experience as digital citizens shows that, yeah, user experience and value trumps almost anything. And I say almost because I think there is an important difference between most countries in Europe and Latin America in regards to institutional strength. So the two institutions that are key, in my view, for building trust online are data protection and cybersecurity. Now, in my limited knowledge, I understand that most countries in Europe have authorities, both with legal frameworks and people to actually do something meaningful on both of those topics. So you, know, you can make a report to the Data Protection Authority or to the Cybersecurity Authority. In Latin America, it's not a given that there's anyone that will pick up the call if you try to make such a report, much less to actually have them do something that will act in support of whoever is delivering the digital service. So it's hard and perhaps not credible for a government in Latin America and Caribbean to say, if there is a breach, we will do this. Because that follow-on action requires institutional capacity. And there are many countries that are just beginning on the journey of building that capacity. Thanks, Ben. And Ailey, on that note, given that your unit is called the Digital Citizen Unit, do you expect the public, if they have a, a query or they have a concern, can they come to you directly? Is that part of your remit? Or would you then signpost them to where they need to go if there were, for example, an issue like Ben was talking about, something to do with their data, their own personal data? So it's a little bit more complicated than that, Siobhan. Usually when it's an issue with personal data, you have to signpost to the person who's the data controller of that data, which may or may not be centralised government. It might not be the Scottish government. It might be one of our local authorities or one of our health boards. So it can get quite complicated. And I think that's part of the issue here. There is such a complex landscape of different bodies involved that although we do have a regulator in the Information Commissioner, and although we do have things like National Cyber Security Centre, it's quite hard, I think, for individuals to unpick who does what and why. And that's part of the issue. Just going back to what you were saying there about why do we trust 
private organisations more than we trust public ones. I absolutely agree with Ben. There is something about the value of the data, and you know, you're when you're giving over to your health authority, for example, all all information about your your personal health matters. That's quite significant. But flip that into a council, a local authority, where a lot of people will be giving over a lot of sensitive information, particularly if it's around social care or social work. But a lot of people wouldn't. So there, you know, there'll be a split in an authority area of people who simply use authority services to empty their bins, to have the street lights, do quite basic stuff. So it's getting the balance right between, you know, how much data you give and also the trust and that the empathy you give people. But I also think there's another fundamental difference between private and public sector, and that comes down to a bit about choice. So we choose in the private sector which places we want to go to to give our data to. And sometimes that choice is driven by societal expectations or norms. So, for example, if you're in amongst of teenage kids who have all got Netflix, who have all got Minecraft, who have all got loads of other gaming things where they're giving over data all the time, then that's their societal norm that they operate in. And if they choose not to participate in that, then they're potentially excluding themselves from something that's quite important to them. Um, public sector, we don't have that choice in some ways. You can choose to interact with your public sector if you want services indeed. But unless you've got money in this country to pay for private health, you're going to go to the NHS. So, you know, that that has to come in and play with it as well a bit. And we have to recognise that if people's choice or lack thereof can play a fundamental component of their reason to trust or not and reason of how much data they give or not and whether they interact or not. So there's all of these things in together. Um, I do agree with Ben about the level of detail that we give here to things like data protection. Um, Obviously, now a few years ago when we brought the General Data Protection Regulation from Europe in 2018, our data protection went from sort of a lower level to quite a high level. And we've had to maintain at that high level as we go through Brexit and inverted commas, exit from the European Union, because we need adequacy, what's called adequacy with our European partners to be able to still continue trading. So things like that, when government is looking at laws and other policies, can interact and affect trust as well. So a government has to work with a unified front, if you like, so that they can't be doing something in one policy area, which is going to impact and impinge on trust in another policy area. That needs to be thought through. And there's, I think we're getting better at doing that with you know much more evidence-led approaches. We really seek to understand through logic modeling and other things that we put in place, how a policy in one area is going to have that 360 effect. And if that will affect trust in another area, that should be really strongly considered before that policy is implemented. And listening to what you both said there as well, I wonder whether there's something about in the private sector, people won't necessarily realise they're giving over their data. They've given permission because they've ticked some terms and conditions somewhere. And actually then they're kind of giving over their data without realising it. Whereas I think in the public sector, we are quite rightly more transparent about when we're asking people to allow us to use their data. I just want to finish with a very general question really to both of you. And again, we're going to have public servants, civil servants who might be thinking about how they start to reach out maybe to the public, how they start to build trust. Any tips from either of you on some of the common mistakes that you might have seen in governments, in the public sector, for them to avoid making? But also, are there any kind of areas of good practice or tips, practical tips for them that you might want to give them in terms of what does good engagement with the public look like when it comes to building trust? Ben, I'm going to come to you first and then Amy, back to you. 
So I, I would highlight three things that we've been over at different points in this conversation. The first is starting with user needs. Uh, usability, user friendliness is of paramount importance. And this includes the diverse types of users like we talked about at the beginning. People might be older or in a rural area or have one kind of a disability or another, being as inclusive as possible to send the signal, yes, this service is for you, and yes, this channel is for you. Second is information and transparency. That's something that we haven't talked about previously that works quite well in the private sector that we haven't really seen so far in the public sector, to my knowledge, is crowdsourced readings. So, you know, when you buy something on Amazon, you don't necessarily have to take their word for it. You can take the word of thousands of people who have given a review or said something about it. Um, and it might be useful for something, that kind of concept to be incorporated into the public sector. And transparency is a related idea that part of the reason that citizens can be apprehensive about using a digital service is that this black box, you fill out some forms, you click a button, and then you just trust. You trust where your information went, you trust that it's making its way through the system. And another thing that works in some cases in the private sector is tracking. So when you ship a package somewhere, a lot of the Providers will allow you to say, okay, put in your tracking number and I'll tell you what's happening. And it will give you this nice little timeline. Say, okay, we received your request now. It's being shipped. It should reach these different milestones along the way. I think that might give some citizens peace of mind. And last is the bit that we were mentioning around institutional strengthening of data protection and cybersecurity. These are invisible things most of the time as they should be. But without these institutions in place, there's nowhere to go in the event of a crisis. And number two, the teams that are delivering these digital services absolutely have to work hand in hand with the experts and the authorities on these two topics to make sure that data protection is embedded in service delivery, as is cybersecurity. Thanks, Ben. So just to recap before I come to Ailey, so inclusivity, that inclusive approach making sure you get the basics right on the kind of data protection and cyber security side to minimize the probability of problems arising and breaches arising. And then I really like what you said about having a review so you could look as a citizen what other users of that service are saying about how good that service is and also some kind of tracking process so you know how long it's going to take for that service to be delivered or for it to complete. I, I like that. And Ailey might tell us that's already happening. I'm not sure if there is something like that. So Ailey, a great list of tips from Ben there or things. Do, what have you got to add to that? So I'll try and keep it simple. I like the idea that Ben said as well about trying to understand how people's experience has been. And actually we do we do, do that one place in Scotland that I'm aware of. That's when people give blood. <laughs> we do do that check. But there's a couple of things that spring to mind that we maybe we've touched on briefly here today, but not really covered. And so I just wanted to, to maybe think about those things just a little bit as sort of finishing points. One thing is, is about balance. When you're doing transformation, it's a balance between the system that you put in place, the processes that you put in place and the people. And the people bit cannot be forgotten and left behind. They have to be upfront and centre throughout that, not just as users, but also as people who are going to deliver the service and people who are designing the service and they all come together to do it. That was one of my thoughts around takeaways. But my other one's a little bit different and I'm going to reach into my digital ethics team 
for this one. And ethics is really what we've been talking about in a lot of ways when we're talking about trust. We put out a paper last November, which we had an expert-led report into how we could do ethical better for Digital Scotland. And so that's worth a read. But actually, these points I'm going to make are from a lady called Emma Martins. Now, Emma Martins is the Data Protection Commissioner in Guernsey. And I, I met her recently and I thought these things that she said were just absolutely wonderful. And what, here's what she said is this. She says, in anything that you're doing around about digital transformation, you should think about applying this five-point test. And the five-point test is this. What would the newspapers say? What would your mum say? Does it stink? Does it pass the legal test? And that's what Ben was talking about. And finally, does it pass the universality factor? And I break this down a slightly different way. And here I have to credit Professor Charles Rabb at the University of Edinburgh. I had a conversation with him once, which has never left me. And basically what he said to me was, Ely, if you give somebody the same circumstances, facts, figures, and money that you have, would they come out with the same outcome about what you're trying to achieve? Outcome, not output. And if they don't, then you need to think again or ask them the questions in a different way. And that stuck with me. So that's universality. Are we doing not just the right thing, but the right thing by everybody that they would understand to be the right thing? What a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Ben and Ailey. I mean, really fascinating to hear getting that global perspective, I think, on these issues of trust. I think the Listeners will have found that really interesting in terms of things that they should take away and think about in whatever policy area um, they are sitting in. But I think the key takeaway for me, again, and this is coming out of a lot of these episodes, is whenever we're talking about digital transformation, it's all about the people and the people are central to all of this. And as you both said there in different ways, it's not just the people you're delivering to, it's also the people who are designing and delivering those services and they're all part of this trust ecosystem thank you so much to both of you pleasure thank you